Hello and welcome to the Snack Fellows and Residents podcast corner. My name's Tom O'Dell. I'm one of the uh, neuroanesthesia fellows here at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. And I'm joined today by Val Luoma, who's one of the consultant neuroanesthetists. Thank you very much for joining me to discuss positioning, Val. Thank you. Um, it's a privilege to be invited. Great. So we all know that there are multiple physiological consequences of different positions used in theatres for a variety of specialities. We know that there are cardiovascular and respiratory implications, abdominal and renal consequences. But today we're going to focus purely on the practical issues related to positioning patients and uh, direct positioning related consequences. So Val, can I start by asking why do you think this is an important topic? So I think careful positioning of our patients for surgical procedures is something that we may overlook. It's something that we can get distracted from because we're focusing on providing anaesthesia and maintaining the patient's physiology. Um, Careful patient positioning, I feel, is fundamental to patient safety. There is a risk of harm to our patients. Um, This is through poor positioning, um, which may have an impact on the surgical field and therefore the surgical procedure, but importantly, it can also have a direct impact on our patients. And this is due to the risks that are associated with positioning our patients. Um, For example, there's a risk of pressure injuries if we're not careful with padding um, and the supports that we use for the different positions our patients go into. There's a risk of nerve injuries to our patients and the quotes in the published literature vary, but it's probably somewhere around one in a thousand patients experiencing this. And most commonly, this is ulnerval brachial plexus injuries. Um, and something that a lot of us in the neuroanesthesia field are familiar with is postoperative visual loss or injury to the eyes. Again, this may be position related, particularly after spine surgery. There is an incidence if you include the corneal abrasions of up to 1% of patients experiencing some sort of ophthalmic injury after their surgical procedure. Which is high. I mean, 1% means that we're likely to experience incidences like this in any department of of anaesthesia, at least annually, isn't it? Yes. So if we perhaps break this down into preoperative and intraoperative, talk briefly about what we can do for patients. In terms of identifying patients who are at risk of peripheral nerve injury or pressure sores preoperatively, and what are some of the key risk factors that we, we identify with uh, preoperative screening? It's really important, as we all know, to take a thorough preoperative patient history. And some of the things that have been highlighted in the literature and things to look out for from the risk perspective of, for our patients is hypertension, diabetes mellitus, a history of smoking, the presence of any neuropathies, vascular diseases, particularly atherosclerosis, because this can, um, as we know, impact on blood flow to different organs or to patient's skin. The impact of these is all very variable and clearly um, be taken into consideration also in the context of surgery and how we manage the patient's physiology during surgical procedures to optimise, for example, blood flow um, in the prevention of pressure injuries or, um, or mm. visual injuries. I was also reading about this phenomenon of the double crush syndrome where a patient that has an injury to a nerve somewhere along its tract is more prone to having an injury um, somewhere else. So, for example, someone with a, a rheumatoid neuropathy who then has pressure on, on the nerve at a different point um, is at increased risk of, of, uh, of developing a post-operative uh, peripheral nerve injury or neuropraxia. Yeah. And there are some surgical factors, I suppose, as well. We know that hypotension and also uh, anemia, um, intraoperative anemia, so combined, obviously, with the situation of, of uh, blood loss in theatre, both increase the risk of of peripheral nerve injury, if you agree with that. 
Yep, they increase the risks of nerve injuries. But in addition, there's also, particularly when we're considering some of our um, patients uh, who undergo neurosurgery, for example, spine surgery, um, the risks of visual loss are also in some papers reported to be associated with high blood loss, so over a litre of blood loss, um, hyper, potentially hypotension, um, and also the duration of surgical procedures, which similarly applies to skin pressure sores and nerve injuries as well, mm. due to the external compression. They must all come in summation sometimes, because longer procedures, um, more complicated surgeries are more prone to blood loss, and maybe in more complicated patients take longer. So there must there's obviously a potential for a perfect storm there sometimes. Yeah. In the team brief at the beginning of a typical theatre list involving some prone or part bench um, position, well, non-supine positions, do you think we should discuss uh, positioning routinely? So I think, um, from my perspective, I think it's essential that we discuss the process of positioning a patient um, amongst the team. Um, for safe, for from the safety perspective, we need to ensure that our patient is safe, but really importantly, we need to ensure that the team is also safe. So I always ensure that um, everybody knows what their roles and responsibilities are going to be when we are positioning the patient, particularly if the patient isn't supine or the positioning is somewhat more complex. Um, something that isn't necessarily routine, but it's really important that everybody has is aware of moving and handling guidelines to ensure their own personal safety. Mm. Um, and then from the patient perspective, if you have an effective team um, that's able to work together, we will pay attention to detail and focus on the different areas of positioning um, and safe positioning, the outcome for the patient will most likely be better. Mm. And the final thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of the preoperative angle on, on this topic, um, how, how or what do you say in conversation with the patient when it comes to consent um, in your pre-op assessment sort of on the morning of surgery? What do you run through with them? From the perspective of patient consent, aside from sort of the routine consent for general anaesthesia and the procedures that they're going to undergo, I consent all patients for the position they're going to be in um, for their surgical procedure. I always discuss the fact that they may have aches and pains, even if they've been supine for a prolonged period of time, um, they may have lower back pain. Um, I discuss the risk of nerve injury, um, visual loss, particularly for patients who are going into the prone position. Um, I highlight risks, potential risks of pressure sores and pressure injuries, particularly for prolonged surgical procedures. Um, and also that occasionally um, there is also risk of um, skin abrasions or skin injuries with some of the um, supports that we use mm. for patient positioning. I feel it's really important to inform our patients of the risks. There are some patients who may find the risks unacceptable and may choose to um, delay surgical procedure or not having have a surgical procedure because of the impact that, for example, post-operative visual loss may have on their life, um, on their quality of life. And therefore, um, it is really important to share even the rare complications that can occur. Mm. I guess with that particular one, visual loss um, being, being rare, but really very devastating for those who it affects significantly. Um, okay, so if we move on to sort of the intraoperative aspect, um, in general terms, what do you think are important in any patient position for pretty much any surgery? The things that you, when you're walking around the bed at the end of the positioning process that you look for and check just in sort of the most generic uh, cases. So I think each of us should 
have a systematic approach to ensuring safe positioning. And there's a multitude of different ways of doing it, but the important or key factor is that it's systematic and that you don't miss out anything in your assessment of how you've um, how you've positioned your patient. So the first thing that I do after I've positioned a patient is to check that firstly that the patient's safe. Um, and this is an airway breathing circulation assessment to make sure that we're still able to ventilate the patient and we have a patient patent airway and they're cardiovascular and respiratory wise stable. I always check that the patient continues to be adequately anaesthetized, particularly if you're using total intravenous anesthesia, there's a risk of cannulas being dislodged when you're positioning. And similarly, you know, you can get disconnections from your endotracheal tube with an inhalational anesthesia. Mm. Then I move on to checking that the patient positioning is satisfactory. So I start at the head end, I check the head and neck positioning is appropriate and adequate, make sure that my endotracheal tube, if I'm using one, or laryngeal mask airways are secured, accessible, um, and I know where my airway access to the patient will be. I then work my way down, so I'll check the upper limbs, the lower limbs, make sure all the bony prominences are appropriately padded or protected, um, check that my um, vascular access lines are protected and padded. And often there's little things, for example, if you're using um, connectors or three-way taps, these can often be missed and can cause pressure injuries to the patient. So it's really important to make sure that these are also padded and, and secured. Particularly in, for neurosurgery, we may be using other monitoring, sort of depth of anesthesia, interruptive neuromonitoring, and we need to ensure that these are also padded and protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, making sure that all the other bony promises are protected and supported and that we know where the access to our patients is. Mm. You've also mentioned before something that I really like where you, you check that the whole team is satisfied with patient positioning, that there's not somebody who's who's got a concern that they don't feel able to voice. You, you make sure that that's a, a, a team decision because it's sort of a team responsibility as well, isn't it? It is. It's an entire team responsibility. And sometimes, you know, as long as if everybody's focused on on the patient and is aware of, of the risks and the roles within positioning a patient, um, it, it allows somebody to highlight something that um, as an individual we may have missed. And it's it's not, un, you know, we've got so many things that we're focusing on at the same time that it is easy to sometimes miss, a, mm. you know, for example, a three-way tap or not having put a gel pad in or something mm. like that. With the, um, if I could just quickly ask about the, the general issue of the brachial plexus and head rotation, do you simply check that um, the tissues in the area are, are, are soft and in a sort of loose pack position um, just to make sure that there's no obvious traction from from the skin inwards or is there anything in particular that you um i always check the um brachial plexus which is on the the direction that the head's being rotated in mm. um and check for the tension as you mentioned in the skin the um other thing that's to note is that surgeons will sometimes also use additional tape or additional supports to sort of retract the shoulder and it's once this has been um applied it's really really important to go back and recheck the brachial plexus. The other thing to mention when patients' heads are rotated, particularly if you're using um, the head ring, mm. is that sometimes ears can get caught mm. um, and you can get pressure sores on ears and it, and also the chin can be too close to the chest. So I always make sure that there's space between the chin and the chest wall, mm. the shoulder, that the, um, so that there's no pressure sores. Particularly if there's secretions, they can pull and cause um, uh, injury. Mm. I have actually seen quite a... Uh, a significant pressure injury on a patient's 
um, sort of around the angle of the mandible from a rotated head yeah. on a horseshoe, which um, which surprised us all in theatre. I think it, exactly as you say. I think it was um, secretion and and surgical wash pooling as well that contributed to that. So if we focus a little bit on the prone position, when citing any sort of prone facial padding, um, is there anything in particular that you do to check its alignment or to reduce the issue of uh, of causing any injuries? The principles are the same whichever method is being used for um, for proning a patient and to support the head. So from my perspective, I always make sure that um, the ET tube is carefully positioned and you can visualise and have access to the pilot balloon that's attached to the ET tube. It wouldn't, it's easy for that to get caught to get somewhere stuck, yeah. and get um, sheared off. I always make sure that the eyes are, are clear and accessible and I regularly check there's no compression to the eyes throughout the procedure and I document this on the anaesthetic chart usually every 15 to 20 minutes but it's um you know there's ver- there's variability in what people like to do mm. um the other thing that I think is um is really important is when you're securing your endocrine tube to consider where tube ties are if they're left for example on the um cheekbones there is a risk of getting pressure sores or um, skin injury from the tube ties, just particularly if somebody's in the prone position for a prolonged period of time. Some of the other proning devices may have a, a lower risk in that perspective. And what about uh, sort of head, neck, chest position um, when prone? Are, are there any variables there that we should look at? So from the neck perspective, it's really important that the neck's not overflexed or over um, extended. Um, some people, particularly for shorter per- periods, may use a pillow um, to prone, which means that the neck will be turned. Um, in the from the neurosurgical perspective, need to be mindful of this position because of the risk to intracranial venous outflow as well as potential risk to um, cerebral perfusion. So it's important to make sure that the neck um, is in a neutral position. In some patients, particularly those who have vascular disease, that you know if the neck isn't neutral, there's a risk of um, or with atherosclerosis, there's always a potential risk of uh, impaired blood flow and stroke. Mm. Considering the chest, there is a risk of pressure sores um, with some of the devices that are used, for example, from Montreal mattress. Moving down from the chest, it's important that the abdomen is free. This is easier with some of the proning equipment that's used, for example, with the Allen table, the Jackson tables, where um, using the Montreal mattress, this can sometimes be a little bit more complicated. Can we move now to talk on a little bit about visual loss, which we've alluded to before? What's the sort of incidence um, in the prone position? So post-operative visual loss is a rare event, but it can be devastating um, for our patients. Um, There's some very good publications from the ASA um, Closed Claims database um, highlighting some of the risk factors, but the incidence in published literature varies. Um, it's probably somewhere between one in a thousand to one in ten thousand patients, but maybe lower or higher. It's more common in patients after spine surgery. Um, and the other thing to note is that when, particularly one of the publications from the ASA claims database, if a Mayfield um, clamp was used for head positioning, the risk was lower than other devices that were used for securing the head for prone positioning. So the two, I know that there are two common mechanisms for post-operative visual loss, or three really. There's the, the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, um, and that's largely related to the fact that the second cranial nerve's um, arterial supply is, doesn't have its own autoregulatory processes, and so is much more sensitive to 
fluctuations in, in perfusion pressure. Um, and then central retinal artery thrombosis, and this is more directly related to pressure on the eye, uh, raised interocular pressure, um, and a sort of compartment syndrome type effect occurs. And then of course, cortical blindness, um, I suppose being the third. Um, do the risk factors for these differ from the risk factors from peripheral nerve injury and pressure sores that we discussed earlier, or is it a, 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 a you know, continuation of the same? To a degree, it's a continuation of the same. There are some things that are specific to postoperative visual loss. For example, it is more common in after um, spine surgery. There may be an association with prolonged surgery, so over six hours. Um, the volume of blood loss, so the quoted is over one litre. Um, it may be related to the type of proning device. Um, and there's also some literature suggesting that the choice of peroperative fluid management may, may also have an impact. But overall, um, the risk factors are similar. So again, diabetes, hypertension, um, preoperative ophthalmic diseases such as arangal glaucoma, male gender and um, older patients. Mm. Um, and it's it's true to say that awake and healthy patients do have some increase in their intraocular pressure with, when prone. And, and some of this can be um, reduced with some reverse Trendelenburg. But of course, I suppose that has to be balanced against surgical access, which is obviously why we're there in the first place. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on to talk then about the park bench position. You mentioned park bench earlier because of the, um, when you're referring to brachial plexus stretch, is, is, is this a position in which that, that risk is more commonly encountered? Yeah, so depending on how the patient is positioned for park bench or what, um, what surgical access is required, there is a risk of um, of brachial plexus injury um, and this is because for some of some surgical access particularly neurosurgery so for example a retrosigmoid approach um, to an acoustic neuroma um, the head will be um, slightly rotated and there's often um, retraction of the non-dependent shoulder um, to facilitate surgical access um, and it's this combination that can then stretch the brachial plexus on the side of the acoustic neuroma. Mm. I've noticed the, the um, operating department practitioners here have comment on the um, ideal angle of the auxiliary roll support um, underneath in the dependent axilla. They talk about it being 30 to 45 degrees to depressurize the dependent brachial plexus. An interesting idea, but I suppose it, it there must be some variation in just in terms of the patient's natural alignment in that area. Um, well, yeah, presumably. so there's a there's a there is um, there's some variation, but I think the important thing is that is to be mindful that um, if the placement is incorrect or poor, um, there is a risk of damage to the neurovascular bundle in the axilla. Otherwise, in the park bench position, um, the we spend a lot of time focusing on the um, uh, the arms with the dependent arm flexed, protecting the ulna at the elbow there, padding any. Um, drips and drains um, on that dependent arm and usually bringing the hand towards the upper shoulder sort of describing this um, as as well as I can without it being visual and then the um, the non-dependent arm um, straightened down the side as you say with some elastoplast or, or sleeve or something to secure it. Now with the lower limbs there we tend to um, have the dependent leg flexed and the upper leg um, extended and then 
it's the same sort of issue with padding, bony prominences, um, and attention to any additional supports or equipment attached to the table. Is that right? Yeah, so that's completely correct. Um, really, the I think the key to this is just is attention to detail and making sure that anything that might um, be impacted by pressure is protected. So ankles, your malleoli, patient's malleoli, knees, um, make sure that there's adequate padding on the supports. Um, importantly, for example, the uh, non-dependent arm, which may be straight, I always make sure that there's padding um, where the arm meets the skin as well, because mm. um, particularly if there's additional um, traction on the shoulder with elastoplast um, or tapes, that can cause compression on the skin and there's a potential for uh, pressure injury there. Mm. Um, and really important to know where your vascular access is um, and where you've placed that and make sure that that's also protected. Mm. Especially as that could be obscured by some of these devices to secure the patient, I suppose. Um, depending, all I want to say was depending on the um, surgical procedure, uh, lateral park bench positioning is slightly different for the procedures but the principles are the same slightly different do you, do you mean predominantly in terms of head and head and neck position or do you mean sort of the actual degree of rotation along the axis of the body so the head and neck position will may vary a little bit so for example if you're doing a um, lumbar peritoneal shunt or you're doing a um, occipital nerve stimulator the head position will be more neutral um, but the arm positions will also vary according to where the surgical axis is going to be. So mm. for a lumbar peritoneal shunt, for example, the uh, non-dependent arm doesn't need to be straight across the body and it may be in a gutter mm. um, for additional support. The, I actually know the name of that gutter. It's the Carter Bain gutter. And it's one of the only things, <laughs> one of the only pieces of equipment we use in theatre that, that has a name. Um, and finally, the sitting position um, or beach chair which we don't use as often anymore. I suppose it's been usurped by variations on the park bench for access to the posterior fossa. Um, and this really is a is initiating the supine position and then and then gradually adjusting until in the full um, sitting position. Is that right? Um, yes, that's correct. Um, we don't use the sitting position frequently. It's usually for pineal tumours. Um, to provide a clearer operative field. But as you said, it's we quite often use um, park bench or even prone position for mm. posterior fossa surgeries now. And I suppose the issue here that you uh, mentioned before with neck flexion um, would be uh, particularly pertinent, as well as the general principles we've discussed with the brachial plexus. Um, do we do anything different around the sacrum, the buttocks, the lower back? Um, sitting is obviously a, a not an unnatural load. Are there any precautions that we need to take? So I think it's really important to ensure you've got adequate uh, padding beneath the sacrum of the buttocks. Um, there is a, there's always a risk of pressure injury. Um, similarly, um, the legs are usually elevated by placing pillows under the knees um, and the hips are slightly flexed to a maximum of 45 degrees. Usually that's sort of between 30 and 40 degrees. Um, it's really important to avoid stretching the sciatic nerve and similarly you can get compression of the femoral vein um, and the sciatic nerve at the uh, ilioinguinal ligaments mm. um, from the hip flexion. And as we've highlighted, um, really important to ensure that all the bony prominences are padded and mm. supported. I suppose it would be neglectful to have a discussion about positioning without mentioning um, venous air embolism. 
Um, just briefly, wh why is venous air embolism seen much more commonly in neurotheatres than elsewhere? So essentially, if you've got, it's, it's a pressure phenomenon. So the uh, intravascular or intravenous pressure is lower than atmospheric pressure and the air gets sucked into the venous system um, and then drains into the heart and uh, can cause an embolus, which is basically an obstruction to the blood flow to the lungs. The surgical field is above the level of the heart. There's always a risk of a venous air embolism. Mostly we tend to see this in the sitting position, but we should be mindful of it when we're using a semi-sitting position or a um, head-up position for our patients. I've seen, again, there's, a, there's a, a lot of variation in the quoted incidence of venous air embolism, but in true sitting position, the literature... Uh, has quoted it as being as high as 30% in some cases, although I'm sure that those aren't all for severe venous air embolism with circulatory collapse. Um, but um, I was surprised that's nearly a third of patients, that's high, that's something to be vigilant of. Yes, I think it's probably a lot higher than we think it is. Um, and it may be that quite often what we're seeing is small venous air embolism. I think it is pertinent uh, particularly from the consent perspective for our patients. Mm. One of the things for with sitting position and venous air embolism is whether patients have a preoperative uh, bubble echocardiogram to exclude a, a patent foramen ovale. Right. Practice varies, but um, from a personal perspective, I think this is important to do, um, particularly from patient consent processes. Val, thank you very much for joining me this afternoon to talk about positioning um, under anaesthesia. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure to join.